So last week, there was an article published in the Sunday Times that was an extended version of an article that first appeared in The Guardian in England. Nikoli Sangani, can white South Africa live up to Ubuntu, the African philosophy that Tutu, Archbishop Desmond Tutu that is, globalized? Those were the questions that were framed and then engaged by Panache Chugumadzi. And of course, she is a well-known writer and commentator, a doctoral student at Harvard University in African Studies and African-American Studies, and has had a number of books also published over the years that uh, you should go and read, starting with Sweet Medicine, uh, which, of course, is the one that launched her from a full first uh, writing uh, perspective um, and absolutely stunning cover, by the way. That is a novel that you want to go and read. And her more recent second book, These Bones Will Rise Again, is also worth reading. Well, I've asked Panasha to come and speak to me because after that article appeared in the Sunday Times here in South Africa, it had huge responses and mostly from white people with a lot of white tears. You're listening to Eusebius on Times Live. That's this latest podcast on Times Live. And it's me, Eusebius McKaiser, exploring the major issues of the week. That means you're going to hear a lot of law, politics and ethics how they intersect and how important these stories are in the life of all South Africans. When people zone, their children must know these are sellouts. They put saliva on the paper. Mr. Julius Malema whispered and said, sing it, sing it. And then they share that zone. No, I'm not going to apologize. Can I have my iPad, please? So they stole it. Panache, thank you so much for joining me on Eusebius on Times Live. It's an absolute pleasure to be in conversation with you again. Thank you for having me, Eusebius. Before we talk about the conversation we're going to have, there's a conversation we will not have, but I want you to say just 30 seconds to a minute why that is politically and intellectually an important conversation we are not going to have. We are not going to be speaking about white people and how white people should scaffold one another in response to articles like your own. Right. Well, of course, you know, we go back to the wisdom of the ancestor, Toni Morrison, and speaking about the ways in which racism is a distraction. So constantly addressing ourselves, responding to it, and and putting ourselves as Black people into a reactive mode is something that I'm not interested in. And hopefully more of us are not interested in that and thinking more constructively beyond just the mode of critique of what whiteness is and isn't doing to us is thinking about what are we going to do about the situation that's landed upon us. And that's the space that I'm interested in working as opposed to thinking about white tears and whatever kinds of, you know, it's like a kid, you know, when they cry, you kind of have to just let them sit through with the emotion and work through that. And that's not my responsibility as a black person, but more, more, Concretely, is thinking through what the Black consciousness position was on the question of the white left liberal establishment around the importance 
of having to work amongst your own community and Black people having to take it upon ourselves to liberate ourselves. And that's a position that I take with many of these kind of questions around white allies, white liberals, solidarity and all kinds of uh, things that now fall under the diversity, diversity, equity and inclusion industrial complex. What is really interesting is to talk about black consciousness. There's a really important moment that happens in the late 60s and then continues into the 70s that fundamentally shifts what happens in South Africa as well as globally the political right. discourse in the fight against white supremacy globally. But it starts really with the birth of black consciousness. And that black consciousness ideology is important because it's a challenge to white liberalism in particular. And of course, it also gives rise to racial capitalism. This is something that's part of your scholarship. Talk us into why that turn is so interesting to you, both intellectually, but also from a political and historical viewpoint. Well, one of the things that you would appreciate is that in this so-called post uh, George Floyd moment, one of the ways in which people are thinking through uh, this crisis that, or well, the ongoing crisis that befalls us is through the question of racial capitalism. People often attribute it to people like Cedric Robinson, um, and really it has become the vogue within the sort of global left discourse. And what is quite interesting for me being based in the U.S. right now is to think about the ways in which that has been or the South African roots of that discourse has been completely erased. So going back to the 1976 article by uh, Martin Legasic and David Hempson, which was racial capitalism and uh, and the well, it, was, it was called 1976, it was foreign investment and the reproduction of racial capitalism in South Africa. That's the first time that racial capitalism was used um, in written text, in written format. And yet that part of that history, that anti-apartheid struggle that ri- gives rise to this really important part of how we think about the question of race, class and capital is erased. And importantly, people like Shireen Ali and Nirina Ali have done the work of speaking to the ways in which the Black consciousness movement in particular was important in reconfiguring the race class problematic in South Africa and thinking about how in that post Sharpeville moment where there was a ban of political parties and in the vacuum, the kind of vanguard of struggle was through the liberal organizations, your NUSAs, for example, the ways in which that moment when Barney Pitiana and Steve Biko and the likes moved out and walked out of a NUSAS meeting and said, Black man, you're on your own, how that was a crisis, both politically, intellectually, for the white left liberal establishment. You, of course, had many pieces penned by the likes of Alan Patton, for example, who really felt themselves in crisis when there was this challenge by these young Black people were saying, we're going to go it alone. Um, and importantly, thinking through how that challenge then forced the left establishment to think through the question of capital from the perspective of race. And that's where we get the theorization of racial capitalism, moving away from the historic kind of theorization of colonialism of a special type. That's where you get seminal texts, which have of course been contested like Harold Wolpe's uh, Cheap Labor Power in South Africa, which was one of the really important texts in reconfiguring how we think about capitalism in South Africa and how capital functions as a function of race. And of course, then Stuart Hall writes his really important essay almost a decade later, taking up what Wolpe's ideas are in his article on race and uh, and models of uh, modes of articulation. That's really important. And so what I really appreciate about this moment 
and the so-called turn to racial capitalism as an analytic is thinking of the ways in which the idea of don't agonize, organize, right? The kind of famous um, uh, uh, dictum that, that organizers will speak to, but it's the idea that we're moving away, particularly in this moment where we're interested in fragility, white tears, blah, 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 blah. We're talking about concrete politics. What are people actually going to do? Of course, the important critiques of that turn and what it meant, especially from the Black consciousness tradition. But I think it is really important to think about what kind of important uh, political developments and articulations can come out of that challenge to do the work amongst yourselves and to think concretely about these questions of race, class, and capital, both in the local but also uh, global context. And I will say this, that one of our gifts as South Africans is that we are incredibly talented at thinking with the world about South Africa, but we don't think about the world with South Africa. And what I mean by that is to say that we theorize racial capitalism as the exceptionality that applies to South Africa. So South Africa as the exception that proves the rule. But then what happens with people like Cedric Robinson and Stuart Hall is that they were able to globalize and generalize the theory. And I think that's really important for us to think about as South Africans, that they are really important circumstances um, and incredibly difficult circumstances, which is why Stuart Hall will speak about the fact that South Africa is the global political, the, the political test case. It is a historical limit case that through which we can test through all these theories, but we aren't doing enough work to say that this is a place, a vantage point through which to think about the world and not just about our particular circumstances as South Africans. Panasha, and that's very helpful as a genealogy of that political set of events and thoughts in the period that you are studying and have a concern with not just in your graduate studies, but also as you write into contemporary regional politics here in Southern Africa with its very long roots, not just only going back to the middle of the last century, but obviously, as we know, far longer back. When we speak about white liberals and drawing on the many brilliant thinkers that you are referencing and whose work you are engaging, can you define for my listeners, as you understand it, through the lens of scholarship, what is white liberalism and who are white liberals? <laughs> Believe it or not, I don't spend much time thinking about white liberals. I try not to. Um, when I go back to Steve Biko's uh, 1972 essay, Black Skins in White Souls, or rather Black Souls in White Skins, where he really sort of goes out and says that, you know what, the white establishment is homogenous. We don't care whether they are liberal, whether they are conservative, they're all the same to us. But I think it's tongue in a tongue-in-cheek uh, comment that he makes because, of course, he then goes to delineate different positions. But what he's saying is really important in terms of thinking about a structural position. Beyond your political beliefs, beyond your political affiliation, we're talking about a structural position that you occupy as a result of historic conquest, right? So we talk about the fact that uh, white South Africans own land in the majority, the fact that unemployment, the, the face of unemployment of that South Africa is black and female, 75% unemployment. That's the frame with which I think about the question of white liberalism, that you can have particular beliefs, just like I as a black person can have particular beliefs, but I am still positioned by history. I'm still positioned by historical uh, structures. So I think in terms of white liberals, it might be those who deviate from the more conservative 
positions, let's say, for example, those who believe that Black people are not human, for example, so the historic sort of right-wing position that was espoused by the National Party. Um, and then, of course, we have a long tradition of liberalism in South Africa. So going back to Cape liberalism, equal rights for civilized men um, is really important in thinking about the idea that Black people technically are human. They just have to be incorporated. And importantly, the civilizing mission, we must historicize, it comes out of the post-slavery moment. So when we find Cape liberalism happening um, at the Cape in the early 1800s, that's in the immediate post-emancipation era. And there becomes this sort of idea that now that these people, these Blacks are no longer enslavable, how do we then incorporate them into the global project of liberalism? And this is part of the civilizing mission. The civilizing mission is directly as a result of the post-emancipation project. And it's important to have that kind of long historical framework in terms of thinking about what is the liberal project. It is about incorporation into Western civilization on its terms. And for me, that's the key problem with white liberalism. It is, first of all, an evasion of history. Um, it is the idea that we should all be incorporated into the terms of Western civilization. Of course, you get people like Helen Zilla's classic speaking consistently about civilization and even her remarks that she made recently about, uh, you know, the Zulu kingdom and how these people clearly cannot move beyond tribal modes and that kind of thing. That is classic liberalism, as, as people would say, the friends of the natives, right? That is the history that we can think of in terms of liberal ideas and how they're directly related to what do we do with Black people now that they're no longer enslavable? How do we incorporate them on our terms into the world? And that's what we push back against as those of us in the Black consciousness tradition, as those of us who are interested in our African-centered politics, that we're not interested in inclusion into the kind of world that has been created by liberal ideas and enlightened philosophy. Beautifully put, and I'm glad you answered the question, notwithstanding the necessary annoyance that comes with answering the question, precisely because the different gradations of whiteness and being white in the world means that we've got to understand the different ways in which whiteness is problematic, because it manifests very differently. That's why you wrote several years ago about the white savior complex in Helen Ziller and her ilk, precisely for that reason, is that if you are not sufficiently literate, although we are intuitively, but uh, putting language to this helps. If you are not sufficiently on your guard and sufficiently literate, you could be fooled into thinking that every white savior who comes along that distinguishes themselves from a blunt Afrikaner nationalist racist must be the real deal in terms of allyship. And one of the paradoxes for us talking about the importance of self-actualization as black people is that part of that means not being distracted like you say by the noise of whiteness but from a relational point of view and we'll come back to that later because that's key to ubuntu from a relational point of view white people are part of the social tapestry literally from a existential point of view and you can't ignore them and structurally they are there so on the one hand there's work that white people must do amongst themselves we shouldn't be distracted i'd rather you and i were talking about science fiction written by black authors for example but on the other hand in order to get there we also can't avoid the in the present the result of that white supremacist history and therefore we continue doing that kind of intellectual work you and I agreed on WhatsApp earlier that parenthetical comments are 
cool to have. Before we continue to the next theme, as a parenthetical question, how do you navigate that? On the one hand, wanting to not talk about Helen Zeller, not talk about white liberals. On the other hand, you can't have a self-contained intra-black conversation that doesn't engage with white supremacy because the reality of white supremacist structures, including racial capital, means that at the very least you've got to describe it. And if we're going to talk about organizing, organizing is in relation to something, and it is in relation to whiteness. How do you deal with that at a personal level? Well, let me just go back quickly and just to say that there's something really important that you pointed to is the ways in which historically the white liberal establishment has absolved themselves in the face of the Africana right wing establishment. And importantly, if you go back to the literature on the roots of segregation and particularly uh, the, 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 the segregation between sort of citizen and subject citizens, it is British policy long before it was the Boers. It's not a, a function of the Boers imposing apartheid on us. It is actually British policy. They're the first in the post-emancipation period to begin to impose. So you look at people, uh, you know, look at Natal, for example, look at the kind of policies that were there immediately. Um, and I'm forgetting his name right now. He escapes me. But all of those, uh, uh, you know, those colonial administrators were the first to implement segregation. It was just that the Afrikaners had a more crude way of putting it, but the British laid the foundation as, a, and because that's important because very often they now sort of put their hands up and say, well, we're kind of just all at the mercy of the Afrikaners, but actually it is their Absolutely. policy yeah. that laid the ground across the continent. That's why you look at people like um, Mahmoud Mandani writing about citizen and subject, that apartheid is not just the exception, but it was a rule across the continent because of British segregationist policy. Really so I just important. want to add that, that important dimension around white liberalism and it's very dangerous uh, consequences for us as black people. I think for me, of course, you, as you're hearing, I spend an incredible amount of time having to understand because this is what structures the world that I live in, right? Anti-blackness structures the world that we live in. So I cannot ignore uh, what is in front of me um, and what structures mine and many other people's lives across, you know, across generations. Um, and it's important for us as black people to have an analysis of our crisis. And so in as far as there's an analysis and knowing what are the historical circumstances, what is the genealogy? Because apartheid, and again, even that's a short historical memory, let's go back to 1652. Many of these things do not happen out of vacuum. There's an intellectual genealogy. If you look at people like Hendrik Kavut, there's an incredible amount of intellectual work that goes into creating these systems. And it's important for us to know how these systems work as a way of ensuring that we do not simply replicate those very same systems. We need to interrogate the system. So it's not about inclusion into an illegitimate settler state, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so that's an important dimension. But then for me is to then say, what vantage point with this analysis, I'm not going to use the terms of engagement that have been set for me. It's to say that, right, I need to understand my oppressor. That's incredibly important. But in terms of then how I then interpret this, it becomes really important in terms of our own African epistemologies. And this is really important because very often when people hear African epistemology, they think about so-called tradition, something of the past, and don't think about the ways in which African epistemologies and African cosmologies are just as capable of apprehending the crisis that is in front of us. And so this is why, for example, Ubuntu, that piece that I wrote was really important because that is a philosophy of race. It has critiqued whiteness. It has critiqued the human. 
Um, and that is important to think about how are our epistemologies also engaging with the very same thing, hmm. right? And so for me, it's to say that, great, I must have a critique, but beyond a critique, I also need to have a vision. Hmm. And the vision is to say that beyond simply responding to whiteness and saying, I am a man, I am a woman, that kind of thing, and trying to prove myself within those terms, is to say, what do I gain or what do we gain from us as Black people? And I try to have the difficult conversations amongst us because they're very difficult. It's not no. to say that because we're all black and we're oppressed, we love each other. No, we all we're agree. not. We're diverse. Oh, and one, exactly. And one of, the, exactly. one of the burdens of whiteness to undo is exactly the idea that black people can't have diversity amongst ourselves, even on questions of epistemology, which brings me neatly to the next theme that I want to explore in the 10, 15 minutes remaining which is really important, and it circles back to what was the impetus for the conversation, your article in Sunday Times. At some point on Eusebius on Times Live, I'll do, with the help of a professional philosopher, a masterclass on epistemology. But if you're following the conversation, I'll give you a crude definition for now. By epistemology, Benash and I really just means knowledge systems and knowledge as well. And frameworks that go with that in terms of how you collect knowledge, what counts as knowledge, what is valuable to learn, to archive, to store. And there's so much there that is in need of being unpacked in terms of both concepts, definitions, but also the history of epistemology. When we talk about epistemology in the USA, in the UK, where I studied for a couple of years, even here in South Africa, in our universities where we teach global north knowledge that is received, we will never say European epistemology. Uh, we'll just say next term you're doing epistemology in third year philosophy uh, because it's taken to be the norm. And even having to say African epistemology, it's our attempt to desperately be seen to also contribute. So there's a lot there. But basically we're talking here about knowledge production and about knowledge systems. Ubuntu is fantastically different to a lot of the things we are taught in classical philosophy in South Africa, because Ubuntu is not individualistic. It fundamentally emphasizes the fact that we are social beings and the relational element between us is important. Before we talk about the challenge for white South Africans, just say a little bit more by way of your own fleshing out of the heart of Ubuntu as a social moral system that is very different to the individualism that is often, and I know I'm being dichotomous because there are people like Hegel that do emphasize social structures, but broadly speaking in Western philosophy, there does tend to be a particular emphasis on the individual and Ubuntu is very different, isn't it, Panache? Right, so when most of us are introduced, I think I did philosophy 101 in Edwitz a little bit, most of us are introduced to the question of uh, epistemology, which is really how do we know what we know, right? Epistemology, people will, will go back to uh, Descartes, right? And the idea, I think, therefore I am, which is a seemingly innocuous statement, but we have to, which is why I have a problem with Enlightenment philosophy, because it evades history, it evades embodiment, right? I think, therefore, am I the rational subject? Think, 
because there are others who do not think there's an irrational other. And importantly, that statement is being made in the context of the rise of transatlantic slavery. The idea that there are certain people who are enslavable because they are situated in the body, whether those who are situated in the life of the mind, and that tends to be white men, then maybe white women who are also of the body, then of course, black people who are the most embodied people, right? And that kind of oppositional thinking is very much at the foundation of a crude understanding of the world created by enlightenment philosophy, rationalism as, as a way of going, uh, as, as thinking through the world. Now, Ubuntu typically, and I go back in historicizing how most of us will come to Ubuntu through that translation of I think, or rather I am because we are, which is by John Mbiti in his classic African religions and philosophy. Now, I'm going to be a bit of a, I, I, I struggle being an African child and, and, and critiquing my elders, but saying that it's a mistranslation because it's umuntu, umuntu ngabantu, meaning a person is a person through other people, which is a fundamentally different enterprise, saying that the African person, the conception of a person is of a social being who is always becoming. So it is not something that you can take for granted. So my first uh, coming into Ubuntu is not through textbooks. It is through, you know, everyday sayings and everyday um, conversation that we'll have at home. So my mother will say, if I'm misbehaving, she'll say, itamunu, be a person, meaning that when you're misbehaving, you are failing at personhood because personhood is about upholding the personhood of other people. When someone is someone we know to hold the person or uphold the person of other people, we'll say, Munu, this is, you exclaim that in fact that is a person, which is telling us that personhood, by virtue of being a being, is not something that you can take for granted. It must consistently be worked at. And that operates at the interpersonal level, which we then say that you must constantly work at being a person. So black people are also failing at personhood. It's not to say that black people are just these wonderful people who are always kind and generous. No, we don't. That is what the critique is about. That's why even my mother can say this to me as a mm. child, say, be a person, or we can speak about so-and-so used to be a badly behaved person, but now they've become a person. That is part of the, be- the becoming dimension of person, which is different from I think, therefore I am, or I am because we are, because that is a stationary kind of, or, or uh, uh, the way in which we can take for granted personhood just because by virtue of being. This is a very demanding philosophy or practice yeah. in a way of being. Yeah. Right. And so here we're saying that it operates both at the interpersonal level, that we can praise some panache for being a person because it's not taken for granted that by virtue of being a human, that you are a person. So that's what I, and the key dimension I'm saying that the human, the U- European conception of the human is very different to the African conception of a person. I, and I, want to, amount- I do want us to get to the question of whether or not white people are able to meet the demands of Ubuntu. I don't want you to spend a lot of time on this question, only because we don't have as much time for today's podcast as we might in a second installment a couple of months from now. It might be worth coming back after we look at how the public has responded to this one and engage further conversation. But I've got to ask you this just as a critical question. If you have already said, as you did under your breath, that black people can also fall short of the normative demands of Ubuntu. Is it you or a sub-editor who's responsible for centering the challenge in relation to white people in the article's headline? Because presumably it's a challenge to all human beings. Well, the point, first of all, as you know, the politics of editing and what you can and cannot say, um, you know, so it was not my title. We had hundreds of back and forths about the title. And the title that I wanted was taking on from and Dumiso Zadla's work on Ubuntu without Abantu, which is about a reclamation 
of Ubuntu for us as Black people and centering that in our politics. And it was important because this has been written about in many different fora, but there was the occasion that we had um, in the passing of uh, Dadem or Dada Tutu to think about what we had, what has been bequeathed to us and how we take very seriously the radical demands of Ubuntu and not the Ubuntu TM that, you know, very much like Terra Nilis has been emptied out of and been reclaimed for a settler colonial project. Sure. That is what my, my intention was. And to think about Ubuntu, not in terms of just the interpersonal dimension, which is incredibly important to resituate that, but also to think about it structurally because Ubuntu was wielded at an institutional and structural level and say, well, what does it mean if we as a country are taking Ubuntu seriously and returning it back to the, this, uh, we say, Isintu, uh, for example, which is the culture, and that's a terrible translation from which it emanates. And that's, those are the questions of reparation, restoration. That's what I was, what my aim was. Yeah. yeah. Nevertheless, even though there's a challenge for all of us, including black people in relation to one another, um, I do think it's interesting to ask the question in relation to white liberals in particular, because each of these conversations are important and are not mutually exclusive. Okay. So as I see it, what's really cool about the question that you have framed and a couple of other pieces have done something in a similar spirit, but I don't think enough, is to say that actually Ubuntu is not the linguistic equivalent of a teddy bear. It is not yeah. rainbowism. It is not gumbayaism. It actually yeah. is very challenging. And at the heart of that is recognition. Many concepts, but one that I like that connects with Western philosophy that many white liberals might be familiar with is the idea of recognition. But when you recognize someone, truly recognize them, it's a deep commitment to see them. And not just to see them physically and superficially, but to take seriously their autonomy, their social history, their familial history, and to recognize the structural injustices that have resulted in ways in which their humanity have been reduced structural injustices that indict you as a white person, or at the very least, your family and generations that come before you. That, for me, is at the heart of the challenge. And the only way I can make sense of the utterly irrational white tears in response to your article is that it is an incredible, pathetic, emotional response to dealing with the demands that are intrinsic to Ubuntu because people want to substitute the high demands of Ubuntu for a bastardization that makes them feel comfortable. Completely. Uh, you see, I love that you talk about being seen. When you say in Zulu, Saubona, uh, if you go to the translation, we see you. It might sound like a royal we, but it's not. It's speaking about the multiplicity of being. You're talking about those who come before me, those who come with me, those who come after you, right? We're talking about all those levels of generations that I'm speaking. I'm not just talking to your physical being. I'm speaking to the multiplicity, your mind, body, spirit, as well as the various generations that you're representing. That's what we mean by recognition. And so you cannot then say to me that, oh, I didn't do X, Y, Z, um, because we are talking about all of the fact that we, we are multiples, right, in generations and time. And importantly, when I think about the way in which Ubuntu is practiced in our family, we don't always say it's this is Ubuntu, this is Wunu. There's a thing in Shona called, um, uh, it's about a spirit um, which will haunt you when you have when somebody has been wrongfully killed or wrongfully murdered and the fact that it might be some a spirit that comes back to avenge generations later 
right? And the ways in which you as your family, even though you might not have been the one to kill that person, but that spirit is now calling upon your family to avenge what has been done or to make right what has been done three generations back. There's no prescription in, in, in African jurisprudence. There's a saying in Isitosa which goes, uh, and I'm going to mispronounce it as a Shona person, but the point being that right? meaning that the, the fat does not rot. A crime does not rot, right? So we don't care whether you did it or not, whether you didn't know what your grandmother was doing, but there is a sense of responsibility that you must make right because all of these things are intergenerational. Mm -hmm. And I think this is what a lot of the tears are about is the fact that you are bound by generations. Mm -hmm. You do not act just in the in, in the interest of those in the current space, in the current being. You are bound by generations. And just like I am bound by the ways in which my ancestors have been oppressed, I didn't choose to be here. Just like you didn't choose for your ancestors to do that. All of us didn't choose this, but it's tough. This is the space that we're in right now and we must be called to account. And that's the difficult part about Ubuntu because most black people will tell you that it's not, it's not fun to be haunted by a spirit of an ancestor from three generations back, but you must deal with it. And that's what I love about going to our African spirituality and epistemologies is talking about the highly demanding uh, tasks that it puts before us because it is not kumbaya, uh, wearing nice Zulu beads, whatever, and that kind of thing. They're incredibly difficult things. And I will say, you see, because you talk a lot about Kimbulikaya, for example, um, and to speak about the fact that there is a deep haunting that we have as Black people, generational haunting. This idea people will talk about in the U.S. as wounded kinship. The fact that shows like Kumbulekaya, the shows like um, Itlozilami are so popular. It's speaking to the fact that there are all these generational uh, claims and hauntings that we are dealing with, but That's they're not true. the kind of things that That's are deemed as yeah. rational um, that we should be speaking to in the public space. But that is incredibly important because there's, there's a reason why Kumbulikaya is amongst the most popular shows, more popular than Real Housewives, more popular than a whole range of things, because not just white people, because they're also dealing with their glosies, uh, whether they want to do, uh, speak about it or not. We as Black people are also dealing with that. And it's to think about how do we address those things? Because whether we think about this in the rational sort of public space, they are being dealt with on a day-to-day -day basis. People are, 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 are struggling with those things. And that's the space where we're pushing or, or we're saying that South Africa is not just a country in Africa. It is an African country that is bound by these, these cosmologies. And it's important that, which is what I really think is really important about Ubuntu, which is a philosophy of race, not, not race, not bound in biology, but bound in social and historical ethics that you can become umuntu if you decide to rise up to the ethical and historical challenge, which is incredibly difficult. It is not a nice challenge. It is not a kumbaya moment. And it's not something that's going to be dealt with in two years or one year or simply the handover of your farm. That's not what we're talking about. It is deep, moral, economic, social work that we need to do. And I don't even think we have even begun hmm. to, to address those kinds of issues. Well, please remind me, I know you will with your magisterial memory, that when we return to another installment, perhaps we can flesh out what such a program looks like for all of us, including black people, but also why, as a footnote, though challenging, like many challenging endeavors, 
You shouldn't be scared of it as inherently scarring or requiring self-flagellation that it is for white people, to go back to Pico, an opportunity to learn to be merely human. And right. although it's a challenging journey, it's not one that is aimed at eviscerating you, but restoring your humanity also as a white person. But I want to ask you this as our final question and give you three minutes to speak into it. Again, as a prolegomenon to a future conversation, but I want you to take it back to Tutu by way of closing. You also have another interest in this article that is part of the layers of it, and that is to say Christianity itself and religion generally, well, depending on the denomination, is also challenging that there is a radicalism in liberation theology that also demands a better ethic of black and white people than the sometimes selective hermeneutics that we see in relation to clergy like Ellen Busak and Archbishop Desmond Tutu, and we need to recover the radicalism of some of that liberation theology. Completely. I think what is interesting, of course, we're in the area of late-stage capitalism, where it's about prosperity gospel and miracles, individual salvation, and it's to think about the ways in which our faith, and I'm interested in faith across all realms, so whether it's our African indigenous ones, whether it's Christian faith, um, and to think about the fact that you would never have, uh, you wouldn't have black consciousness, which is so important to me, without black liberation theology. That's important because very often our politics are so secularized. There's good, under there's good reason for that, but I also think that we miss part of the dimension around the values and a fundamental reimagination of being. Because this is a society where you have the highest rates of, of uh, femicide, highest rates of homicide, all kinds of extremities are there. And it's not going to be dealt with the return of the land alone. There's a whole range of things that we need to reimagine as ourselves, as Black people. And what I really appreciate about going back to the tutu of particularly the 70s um, and how important he was in cementing Black liberation theology and its relationship to Black consciousness is going back to the idea people like Mfubotzi um, Abraham uh, Tiro will speak about the fact that Jesus Christ is the Christ of the oppressed. He's the one who died for the liberation of the oppressed. So i.e. he sides with the poor first and foremost. It's not about a liberation, uh, a kind of liberation in riches kind of theology. It is first and foremost with those who are oppressed and also is very much willing to do very radical things. So if you go back to that trial with the Black Consciousness Movement, and they speak about how radical their understanding of Jesus Christ was a Palestinian Jew was in that moment. Um, that's the Black liberation theology we're talking about, not the kind of asinine Christianity this moment, which is about sort of um, being pious and being holier than thou, but saying having real demands for yourself and saying, what does it mean to lay your life on the ground for the oppressed and to lay your, your stake with them. And that's the kind of uh, theology that I think is most important. Black liberation theology, even uh, people like Alan Busak were very instrumental in that moment, go back to his text. Um, and importantly, uh, Tutu intervenes in a debate between James Cohen, who wrote about Black liberation theology, and James Mbiti, who had made an opposition between Black liberation theology and African theology. And he said, by virtue of being South African, my Africanness and my Blackness are two concentric circles. I understand that these things must come together. The i.e., where you're saying that James Beatty was saying that 
uh, black liberation theology is too political. Um, and then the African-Americans were not interested in Africa. And he was saying that we have to deal with the political expediency and the urgency and the historical moment that arises if you do not deal with the concrete situation of people, the enfleshed reality, so Jesus Christ of the flesh, then your Christianity is not Christianity at all, which is why he would say, I'm ready to go to hell. And that's the kind of radical theology that I am interested in, not the kind of, I don't want to name names because I'm going to get into trouble, but the kind of, <laughs> the kind of, yes, Baba, I receive, I receive kind of Christianity that we're talking about. It's about a collective struggle. And that is what I'm interested in, the kind of uh, theologies, whether it is our indigenous African theology, whether it's Christian, whether it's African independent churches, that can bring us and rise to the challenge of liberation and reimagining being. That's the kind of space that I'm interested in. And I hope that people return to that vision mm-hmm. too. Benasha, this has been an absolutely fantastic lecture and conversation on the politics, as well as the intellectual history around black consciousness, liberation theology, and the implications for whiteness, white people, and for us as well as black people to think about in terms of how we relate to one another and how we think about where we are situated and how we are situated in the world. All the best with your graduate studies and thank you for your excellent forays into public discourse. Thank you so much for having me, Sidious.